I'm Darius McDermott from Fund Caliber, and this is the Investing on the Go podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Brett, manager on the Elite Rated BG Japan Fund and the BG Japanese Trust. Matthew, good morning. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a very interesting year in markets. Japan has not been immune to um, you know, some of the, the difficulties that, that, that have gone on in equities and bonds. I just wanted to t- start, if we may, on what's happening economically, particularly with respect to the BOJ's policy of sort of suppressing the yen. How is that, how is that manifesting itself in companies uh, and what are doing about it? Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting time uh, for Japan at the moment because, like other parts of Asia, Japan is basically a bit behind where we are in terms of reopening from COVID. Right. So I went to Japan in September and, you know, everyone's still incredibly cautious about COVID. Um, but we can see how that, you know, closer to home has changed quite quickly. We'd yeah. expect that to happen and the, the economic activity to be picking up. And again, the tourists are only really allowed back into Japan from now. So we should again see a pickup in activity coming from the tourists returning to Japan. And in terms of that Bank of Japan policy, what is interesting about it is that when we go back in time, people used to be pretty uh, cautious about the zero interest rate policy because they said, well, look, without inflation, it doesn't make any difference because if you've got... um, you know, zero interest rates, but you've got a bit of deflation, you've still got a positive real rate and it doesn't yeah. really make a difference. Whereas what we've seen in recent times is as there's a bit of inflation in the system, that zero interest rate policy really starts to become very stimulatory. And so in many ways, uh, this is exactly the kind of situation that the Bank of Japan has been trying to get to for right. many years of actually having some inflation and a negative real interest rate and starting to try and get the economy going. Now, the interesting thing looking forward is going to be what happens when Mr. Kuroda's term ends mm. um, and that'll be in the spring and whether they'll be having another look at that policy at that point and deciding, you know, do we want to keep going at quite like this level. So, so that weakening of the yen, how has that affected companies? I mean, I imagine it's good for exporters and, and, and the like. Yeah, I mean, we see at the moment some, what to me seems slightly um, ill-thought-out comments around, you know, is a weak yen damaging to Japan? Because, you know, I invested through the global financial crisis, and at that time you had a strong yen, and it was really, really damaging to the Japanese exporters. And if we're going into a kind of tougher economic environment, Personally, I'd far prefer to be going into that with a weak yen, and that will help all the manufacturing businesses, and then that feeds through the rest of the economy. So in many ways, I don't, I don't see the weak yen as a particular problem. And the other thing we should probably say is that when we go back to that strong yen period, the yen was really strong against everything. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, although we're talking in terms of a weak yen, in some ways what we're really talking about is a strong dollar. Yes. And so maybe the challenge will come, look, if we have a tougher economic background, you know, is, is actually it going to be experienced by the US manufacturing sector rather than as it was the last time by the Japanese sector? So you know, time will tell, I guess. Time will tell. So another phenomenon that's 
taken place in 2022 has been fairly dramatic underperformance of small and mid-sized companies, certainly in the UK, certainly in the US, certainly in Europe. Has that been the case in Japan? Because I know you're, both your um, trust specifically and, and the fund does have access to business small companies. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, essentially, the, the smaller, uh, higher growth type of businesses, particularly anything that's not reached profitability yet, have been, you know, the kind of things that, that you know, have really been sold off quite aggressively. And I think that that is a pretty global phenomenon. The slight difference that we have in Japan is the prices of a lot of these things didn't go up before they went down to the yeah. same extent. So when we look at the, the valuations of a lot of these small, high growth things, you know, we're pretty excited. And so as a result, we've actually been you know, taking the gearing on the trusts up a bit and, and buying more of these things at what we, we hope is, is a good time. And what sort of level have you taken the gearing to? Well, so the Japan Trust, the net gearing at the moment is about 17.5%. Okay, so that, that's sort of at the upper end of where you, you, you tend to get to. So that I'm looking at an excited Matthew Brett here this morning. He sees valuation opportunities um, in some of those preferred names. So you, you talk about some of the, the gearing there, but the to have you know, been buying and selling quite a few names in recent. Um, do you like to give us a little flavour, not necessarily by name, but by sector and which areas have been either leaving or, or, or re-entering the portfolio? Yeah, so we've, we find, you know, amongst that, that kind of high growth small cap area, you know, several different opportunities recently. So, for example, uh, Oisix is a is a meal kit uh, delivery type of company. We've also bought Demican, which does food delivery. Um, so, you know, these kind of digital transformation type of opportunities, uh, a lot of those have been priced down quite aggressively, mm. but we think they still have. You know, a great opportunity ahead of them. We've also been buying and adding to companies in the cosmetics space. I talked at the start about how the the, the reopening in Asia is behind where we are, yeah. and you know, tourism is a big part of those companies' demand. Chinese tourists coming to Japan to buy uh, skin cream and, and bring it back, and a lot of people buy cosmetics at airports as well. And all of that is just, you know, still not really got going yet. But when we take a long view. You know, it seems absolutely inevitable that those things will get going again and we should see the, the profits recovering. So those are two of the areas we've been finding opportunities in. And what about Nintendo, a very well-known stock to Western consumers? Um, how, how, is that one that you, you currently own or is that one that you've added or, or, or in fact, let go? Yeah, so Nintendo is one that, that we've held in 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 the majority of team funds for, for a long time. Uh, the Japan Trust has tended to have smaller gaming companies, right? but recently we decided to take a holding in Nintendo for that as well. So yeah, we own, we own Nintendo across all of the, 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 the larger cap uh, funds that, that we run. We don't hold it for Shin Nippon just because it's, it's yeah. too big. And I think, you know, with Nintendo, you know, the real excitement here is is just the sheer quality of the, the intellectual property, you know, Mario, yeah. you know, their skills with the software side of things, which we think gives it a, a lot of durability. And that strikes me as being one of the companies that would have been a beneficiary of the working from home and spending more time indoors and less time outdoors part of COVID. So um, I think is that a challenge they face as is reopening? Will, they, will their product be used less or are they such an ingrained name within global gaming that, that it doesn't make any difference? 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. You know, all gaming companies had, you know, a bit of extra demand from COVID. The difference with something like Nintendo is because it's mainly selling, you know, consoles and then package type of software. What it means is that the question is, do people buy it or don't they buy it? Once they've bought it, it doesn't matter as much as for some types of gaming, how much they're using it. Yeah. So in that sense, although the, the COVID you know, has, has been a slight positive right. and coming out will be a slight negative, I think the bigger point with Nintendo is just the sheer uh, durability of the software franchise and what they can do with that. You know, in the long run. Maybe that question might give it away that I'm not a gamer and <laughs> hence didn't fully appreciate what where, where Nintendo's role, other than obviously a very, very high profile brand. Uh, let's talk about car manufacturers, uh, an area that you have been invested in in the past, but uh, no car manufacturers today? This, this is quite a big change for us. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of the past 15, 20 years, you know, we've never had more in-car companies than the, the, the index as a whole. So, you know, in that sense, we've never been huge fans of the car industry. It's quite a tough industry. Yeah. But we have found individual companies that we've liked. Um, and those have included things like Subaru, which has the very good uh, all-wheel drive type of technology, very popular in America and in snowy areas. Also Mazda, which has had the Sky Active engine technology, which are high compression, very efficient engines. But basically, we've come to the view that the world is changing and uh, we need to, to take that into account. And what we're seeing now is that pure battery electric vehicles are reaching, in our view, a point of adoption where we're kind of at that J-curve point where the adoption now could grow really fast. Yeah. When we take a step back and look at those those vehicles, we just see them basically as being a better option for many cases. I mean, they're faster, um, they're cheaper to run, uh, they're simpler to build in the end, and they don't have any emissions out of the, the, the tailpipe because there isn't one. Yeah. Now, obviously, the catches with them are they do take a little while to charge up and you've got a range limitation. But both of those two problems are becoming increasingly diminished now. Yeah. And we just think basically that the Japanese, because they focused both Subaru and Mazda, use Toyota Motors hybrid type of technologies, we just think that they have gone down the wrong technology path. So more path around the hybrid path rather than the total EV. Exactly. And of course, they're, they're working now on bringing EVs to the market and they'll succeed in doing that. But they're now quite a long way behind where other people are. And in the UK, of course, you know, we see a lot of Teslas around. Yes. Um, and we see now a few MGs, which is now a Chinese brand. What we've not really yet seen is the sheer number of uh, lower-end electric vehicles being produced on scale now by Chinese companies. And some of those, you know, you're able to get now a battery electric vehicle for equivalent of about $5,000. And those have yet to kind of reach the European market. But yeah. You know, we just think all of this could be very disruptive and, you know, ultimately it could be a bit of a, a bloodbath for the traditional automakers. Yeah, so, so basically, like just the, the choice of the hybrid route has been the real sort of maybe mistake or error in judgment by, by the Japanese companies. So I would have thought of them as very technologically advanced and at the yeah. forefront of some of these sort of high-tech areas. That's what I think about Japan. Well, and I think that's right. And, of course, what they saw beyond hybrid was fuel cell vehicles. Uh, but 
you know, hydrogen fuel cells, you know, they do have some issues and uh, particularly uh, around, you know, the safety and so on of storing the hydrogen. Yeah. And this is now looking like a technology. Of course, it will be a value maybe for larger vehicles, but for, you know, domestic cars, it just looks like battery electric is going to be the future, you know, for for quite a while. That's what, yeah. and, uh, and unfortunately, yeah, we just think they, they've gone the wrong way there. And it's perhaps kind of, it's a bit like, um, you know, in the past, you know, we used to invest a lot in copier companies when screens uh, improved and connectivity improved and everyone moved on to iPads. You know, it's not that Canon doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's just no longer got the growth profile that it used to. And we, we've not held that for years. And in the same way with the car companies, you know, we're not saying, you know, any of these companies are going anywhere soon. We just think we can do better in terms of growth elsewhere. So just finally, then, we've talked briefly about the gearing. And this is one of the differences between an open and a closed ended product where you have that lever to pull, where you, where you see those valuation opportunities and, and you've touched on that. But another function, I suppose, or an output of, of closed-ended companies is the ability of shares to trade slightly above the net asset value or indeed below, known as a discount. Um, not unsurprisingly, in 2022, when most assets have, have been out of favour, the trust has traded on a bit of a discount. Well, that appeared to have narrowed in October. Was that just a sentiment change or has the board actively started buying back shares? Another mechanism that, that investment trust boards have is to buy their own shares back for cheaper than they know the net asset value to be. And that is accretive to, to, to shareholders. Is that what's been happening or is this just Japan's back in favour and hence the discount is narrow? Yeah, so I think it's kind of in many ways, it's, it's all of those factors right. have, been, have been in place. So, you know, the trust in the past has, has issued some shares when the, the, the trust is traded at a premium to yeah. NAV. And then more recently, as the trust has been at a discount to NAV, the board has bought back some shares. Um, but then over the past kind of month or so, um, effectively, I think we've just seen you know, more buyers than sellers. Um, it's not being driven by, you know, aggressive buying back from the board. It is being driven by... Uh, you know, effectively people being prepared to pay a higher price for the shares. And you're right, the, the discount uh, is now closed into a kind of low single-digit uh, type of discount, you're well under 5% yeah. at the moment. Um, and I think one of the features of the Japan Trust in particular is it, it does have quite a stable shareholder base. Um, so actually the, the amount of kind of turnover in the shares relative to its size... Yeah. is not what it would be if it was a kind of more conventional uh, listed company. And I think that also perhaps has had a bit of an effect that you know, the discount perhaps moves around more than, than you might think, you know, based on whether, you know, there's, there's slightly better sentiment or slightly worse sentiment. But yeah, currently you're right, the discount has, has come in a bit, yes. So in summary then, you're pretty positive gearings at the upper end on the trust, which suggests that you're seeing better value than on, than on a normal year. And even though it's been a, you know, a tough year for equities, you think Japan's well-placed going forward? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And, and also the trust is, uh, you know, decided, the board's decided to, to propose an, an increased dividend again this year from 6p up to 9p. So, you know, a 50% increase in the dividend. Yeah, and nice. that, 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 you know, 
that just reflects the fact that you know, the underlying holdings, you know, have been growing the, the dividends over time, and that that's coming back back to the shareholders. Matthew, thank you very much. If you'd like to get more information on the Bailey Gifford Japanese Fund or the Bailey Gifford Japan Trust, please do visit fundcaliber.com. Thanks, Doris. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 